I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, and the guys, at least on over here, have some Bibles, and then we're going to have some in the middle here momentarily, and if you need a Bible, then get some of these guys' attention as they make their way back, just raise your hand, and they'll get one to you. It's marked for you at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Keep that Bible as our gift to you. 2 Thessalonians 1. We're in the midst of a relatively brief series on a monumentally important topic of prayer, a renewed emphasis that is needed in our individual lives, including my own, but also in the collective life of our congregation. For the past three weeks, we have looked at the model prayer that Jesus gave to his followers Now today, and for at least one additional week, possibly two, I want to look at some prayers in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. Now most of you know that Paul wrote nearly half of the books in your New Testament, 13 of 27. Most of those were written to churches that he had a hand in starting, while others were written to pastors of churches. Paul's heart for and his emphasis on the well-being of the local church is therefore evident, and it's reflected still further in the, con- in the content of what it is that he writes to those churches. In many of them, he recounts how it is that he prays for them. And in reading those, we get a glimpse of what he thinks is important to pray for, and it becomes a sort of tutorial for us in how to pray. Many years ago, I read a book by D.A. Carson that is devoted entirely to that subject, The Prayers of Paul. It was originally called, uh, titled, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers, but now the updated title is Praying with Paul. We have some copies of that in our resource center, and I recommend it for your consideration. And I also wanted to acknowledge my indebtedness to it for some of what I will say today, Jesus gave us a model prayer, and Paul shows us some of what it means to put it into practice. So let's pray now and ask God to help us as we look at that. Father, we thank you that we are here with your word opened before us to instruct us. Thank you for giving us the light of your word so that we do not grope in darkness, but we know what your will is. You've made it known. You've you've revealed it. And you have told us about the subjects that we need to to know about for our walk with you, including the subject of prayer. And so we thank you for the model prayer preserved for us from the Lord Jesus and now the practice of prayer by our brother Paul. May we learn from both and put those into practice in our lives and congregation. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in verse 11 of the passage to which I've asked you to turn, it says this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that, and then he goes on to talk about the couple of things that it is he prays for. But he begins verse 11 with, with this in mind, here's what I pray. So with what in mind? We'll get to the content of his prayer in verses 11 and 12 at the very end of the message today. But first we want to see the framework that gives rise to the prayer. 
what it is that Paul has in mind as he prays for the church in Thessalonica. And that goes back to verse 3, where he says this, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. Now please notice, friends, from the outset that his mindset, as he says with this in mind down in verse 11, and he started all that in verse 3, and he says we ought always to give thank God for you. Notice that his mindset is outwardly focused. And this makes the first point in the outline that you should have received when you entered today, where I say this, we should practice selfless prayer. And we can see that Paul's mindset is outwardly focused in verse 3 because he mentioned we, God, and you, and brothers and sisters. In verse 3 saying, we give thanks to God for you. So his thoughts, what he has in mind when he prays, is God and them. And it's not only Paul who has this God-centered and other-centered approach, it's his associates, because he says, we think this way. His group includes at least two others mentioned in the very opening verse of this letter in verse 1. Notice, Silas and Timothy. So it's Paul and Silas and Timothy. And all of them pray for this church, and this is how they pray. With God and them, God and the Thessalonians at the forefront of their minds. Now, I said a bit ago that this kind of prayer report is present in many of Paul's letters to, to churches. For example, to this same church, he said in his first letter to the Thessalonians, first in the book of 1 Thessalonians, he said, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. He goes on, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God, our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all of his holy ones. So he's told them in his first letter, this is how I'm praying for you. And now in the second letter, he's telling them, this is how I'm praying for you. He did the same thing for the church at Colossae. He said, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Now notice, all of these so far have been in, in chapter 1, toward the very beginning of the letter. He tells them how it is that he prays for them. Likewise, to the church at Philippi, chapter 1. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Chapter 1 of Ephesians. I keep asking that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And then in that very same letter, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, I kneel before the Father, 
And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now these are, as I've read through them, I'm sure you gathered, these are somewhat heady prayers that Carson explains in the the book that I mentioned. And I'm not going to, don't have the time to to explain them. I'm not going to explain uh, all of the content of the prayer that's before us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But you can see from a a cursory reading that Paul's priority throughout is outward. It's toward others. In these reports on how he prays, he's he's doing a number of things. One of which is he's instructing those to whom he wrote on priorities in prayer, and by extension, he's instructing us on those priorities in prayer. One thing that we learn from Paul's selfless prayers then is that we should, as I say in the outline, devote some time to others. When I say devote some time to others, that is devote some time in your prayers for other people. That's what you see Paul doing. And you see him praying for others the kinds of things that Jesus prioritized in the model prayer. That God's character will be displayed in them. Do you remember, hallowed be your name, that that's what that that means? That God's kingdom priorities will be most important to them. Your kingdom come. That God's will is done in and through them. Your will be done on earth as it is in, in heaven. We do this, devote some time in prayer to others because both Jesus and Paul have commanded and they've modeled it. But it's my observation that this has a residual benefit for those who make it their habit. And that is that they are able to take their eyes off of themselves and their problems while praying for others. One of the practical benefits you get, we all get, if we make it a habit to pray for other people is it allows us, at least for a time, to take our eyes off of the things that are happening in in our lives. Bear in mind that when Paul prays like he does for others, he is personally almost always under duress. When he prays for the spiritual well-being of the Philippians, for example, he himself is under house arrest and chained to a Roman guard. But because of his selfless outward focus, he's able to mute the internal voice that all of us have that screams for our attention, demands our full focus, and overtakes really our entire lives. Retired pastor and author Tim Keller said, when you begin to talk to wounded people, it is not long before they begin talking about themselves. They're so engrossed in their own pain and problems that they don't realize what they look like to others. They are not sensitive to the needs of others. We are always, always the last to see our self-absorption. Praying for others is a healthy spiritual antidote to the universal tendency to turn inward when suffering. So much so that we might even withdraw from the presence of others. Stop attending and fellowshipping and interacting. But if we're praying for others, even while struggling ourselves, we'll find it easier to be with others because our focus is not entirely on our own issues. 
An upward look to God, friends, and an outward look to others is a healthy look for us. An upward look to God and an outward look to others is a healthy look for us. Now, I need to add an important disclaimer. Notice that I say in the outline that we should devote some time to praying for others. I'm not saying all of our praying is for others and none, and none of it is for our needs. We saw last week that Jesus tells us to pray for ourselves, but he gives the, the priority. We do that after giving priority to what continually matters to God before bringing what circumstantially matters to God. Our daily needs, our, our daily bread, our intimacy with him as we ask, forgive us our debts, our ongoing righteousness so that we ask for spiritual protection, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And with regard to asking for our basic needs, this would include prayer for health. In fact, remember that Paul himself said, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And the fact that it's worded that way, this thorn in my flesh, most commentators, and, and I agree, believe this is some physical malady that Paul had. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. So here's Paul himself asking for deliverance from some physical thing. So it is quite good for us to do so as well. So we should not hesitate to ask the Lord for relief from whatever pain and difficulty we might be in, as Paul did, so that he could serve the Lord free of those encumbrances, whatever they were. And if you, friends, are in the throes of grief, or you're in a new situation that's blindsided you, and you're reeling from the news, and your mind is going a thousand directions regarding how you're going to adjust, what all that you, you need to do, how you're going to get it done, then please do not take what I'm saying here as condemning a focus on your problems now in that situation. As we pray for other people, there are times where we need them to pray for us. And we should not be shy and we should not be ashamed to say so. And take the time that we need to heal and restore at least enough time to get back on the field as the Lord allows. So we practice selfless prayer, devoting some time to others. And, I say, divulging some content to others. This section of 2 Thessalonians, like those portions from the other books that I put on the, the screen, other, they are these prayer reports, reports of how and what it is that Paul prays for those to whom he's writing. When you look at passages in the Bible, it's always good to ask yourself why this particular passage is there. Each passage that you undertake to, to study is somehow contributing to the purpose of the book. So knowing the purpose of a book of the Bible helps you put the passages that comprise it in their context. Now we talk about both of those at, at some length in both of the foundational classes that we urge everybody to take and many of you have taken, how to get the most out of your Bible and master plan for life. And so these reports from Paul in these different letters to churches are somehow helping him achieve his purpose in writing those letters. There's something that he knows that they need to hear, and he's supplying it 
partly with these reports. Now, we'll see some of the content of the prayer report and Paul's prayer itself in a bit. But for now, in verses 3 and 4, he talks about for what he gives thanks for them. And then in verses 5 through 10, he addresses the fate of oppressors versus the fate of the Thessalonians, the oppressed. And this is all based on what he knows they need, and he's saying it precisely to meet that need. That is, he's divulging some of what he's thinking about when he prays for them, and also specifically what it is he prays for them, because he knows it will help them now to hear it, to read it. I suggest to you that we should do the same. That we should pray for others and then we should tell them what we're praying in order to encourage them. Now, how would you know what to pray for a specific person? Well, one way is to have them tell you what's, what's going on. But notice now, that assumes you have some way to learn of it so that you can pray for it and then tell, it, tell them that you're doing so. And so how do you go about gaining a knowledge of another person's needs so that you can pray for them and then encourage them by reporting your prayer? I just thought of this as I'm standing here. What, what if a church had, I don't know, groups of people that met together, say every couple weeks, in homes? And then those people, we get to know each other, and let's share some prayer requests. And then I'll pray for you, and then two weeks, I'll ask you how it's, how it's going. What's the Lord doing in, in your life with, with that? That would be a great thing to do, don't you think? And if I went to a church like that, I would go out of my way to be a part of one of those things. Now, of course, I'm being facetious because we do have those things. And I know not everybody can participate in those, but it is a great way for you to do it. It's one of the reasons that we have our community group ministry. This fall, we do our every two-year regroup. And so I would encourage you now to set this fall in your mind as a time where we are going to be part of that regrouping. If you want to join one prior to that, well, then that's better still. We should practice selfless prayer, and we should practice studied prayer prayer. Now by that I mean we should practice informed prayer, informed in ways that we'll see in the remaining points in the outline. We can pray generic prayers for people that we don't know or don't know very well. For example, when I read a prayer request for someone's relative who's in the hospital, I may not know the person in the hospital, but I can pray for their physical care and also that the Lord will grow them through the ordeal, bringing them to salvation, if that's what's needed, or further sanctification, if they already know the Lord. But that's about as far as I can go with somebody that I don't know. And when you read the church's prayer list, at least as it's currently structured, you have mostly physical needs listed, and sometimes for people outside the church, or perhaps members who are unable to attend, so you're praying for people you don't know well. Or it may be you're the one unable to attend, but you want to pray for others, so you're thankful that we have the list and you regularly pray through it. I know we have many, a number of people who do that very thing. 
In those cases, you can pray, as I mentioned, in general ways for their physical and spiritual well-being. Sometimes we don't know for whom we pray, but as we are able to personally connect with others, we should do that. As much as we are able to personally make connections with others, we should do that because one source of information for our prayer is, as I say in the outline, relationships. Relationships inform prayer. Now, we all have only so much bandwidth for relationships. So we cannot know all acquaintances equally well. You cannot know everybody in our church equally well. I'm going to have some people, you're going to have some people that you, you know better, some less. But hear me now, but unless you're providentially hindered, I better know some people. Let me say it again. It may well be that I'm going to have some people I know better, but I better know some people. And so I would ask you, just as a challenge, to consider where you are with this and how much your life and the way you're pursuing it, the Christian life, models what we see in the Apostle Paul. He knows these people for whom he prays. And so... How many people do you have here now that you could pray for knowledgeably because you have intentionally endeavored to have relationships with them so that you can do that very thing? So I say it may well be that I'm going to have some people I know better, but I better know some people. And I emphasize that because the Bible has about five dozen one another commands that cannot be obeyed unless we know one another, including James 5, pray for one another. How am I going to do that? So relationship informs prayer. And relationship informs prayer regarding a couple of things. One is for what to be thankful. This framework of Paul's prayer fits the circumstances of the people for whom he's praying. Verses 3 and 4 say this. Verse 3, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Here's a church that is growing in the virtues that define the Christian life, faith and love. Now, many of you know elsewhere in Scripture, faith, hope, and love are spoken of as the three essential elements, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And love is the greatest because Jesus said the greatest two commandments are, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said on these two commandments, hang all of the law and the prophets. And then faith is belief. You've heard me say that many times. Same Greek word that's translated sometimes faith, sometimes belief. When you see faith, you can substitute belief or trust. Faith is belief that results in trust in God. And Paul knows something of these people in their circumstances, having a relationship with them because he had been with them and he sent Timothy to inquire about them 
his first letter tells us. So he knew that they were young Christians in a volatile environment, as we'll see in a moment, and so they needed to grow in these essential characteristics of godliness. And he had a word that indeed uh, that, that they were so that he was able to give thanks for what he had heard. And he tells them he's thankful for what he's hearing about them and their growth in faith and in love. I'll mention hope in just a bit. So relationship informs prayer regarding what it is we give thanks to God for. The more I know about someone, then I can pray knowledgeably for them, and then I can give thanks to God for what He's doing in, in their lives. It informs prayer regarding what we give thanks and for what to focus So I mentioned hope. You may be asking, where is hope in that faith, hope, love triad? Since he mentioned, did Paul, all three of those in his first letter to the Thessalonians and the very first chapter, faith, hope, and love. But faith and love bookend hope. So enlisting those two, it's a way of summarizing the Christian life, including hope. But also, here's another reason that I think he didn't explicitly mention hope yet. And that's because hope is, in Scripture, future-oriented always. Titus chapter 2 speaks of the blessed hope of the Lord's return that we have for the future. But they need to see something about that future hope, do the Thessalonians, in their particular circumstances. And Paul's going to supply that thing that they need in verses 5 through 10 that we'll see in a bit. Verse 4, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. Now, the persecutions and trials mentioned here, we have some window into those because we're told of the volatile situation in Thessalonica in the passage that Pastor Larry read for us earlier from Acts chapter 17. There was a riot there due to Paul's gospel message, so it was unsafe for him, and he had to be, as you heard Pastor Larry read, he had to be whisked away, and even then, some pursued Paul in his next stop in Berea to harass him there. So Paul knew for what to look in their spiritual progress because he knew them and their situation, and he could pray accordingly, and he could give thanks when those prayers were answered and though that was then made the focus of his prayers, the very circumstances that they were enduring. You know for what to pray and what to give thanks for and what to focus on because you know for whom you're praying. So you must have a relational context in which to gain that knowledge. In our community group, the one that I'm a part of two weeks ago. All in our group uh, gave the rest of the group one thing for us to pray about over the next couple of weeks until we meet again. And I wrote them all down, and then I went through each one of those. There were 12 of us. And so we received these 12 requests, and then I gave one of those to each of the other 11, and I took one myself. And so over these last two weeks, we have been praying about those for each, each other. And tonight at our community group, 
we're going to ask each other how, how those things are, are going. But that happens because there's a relational context that allows it to happen. We practice studied prayer. And relationship informs our prayer, as does theology or doctrine. Truth informs prayer. Now, by this, I don't mean that your prayers need to be filled with theological terminology that might impress, but also might depress those who are there. And especially if everybody's invited to pray, you, you might intimidate someone into being all the more shy about praying. People do not need help being made more shy about praying in front of other people in a, in a small setting. And so I would encourage those of you that know all the theological buzzwords to uh, maybe keep some of those out of your prayers for the sake of other people. But instead, I mean that knowing God's truth will allow you to pray accurately, not necessarily scholarly. We see an example of this in verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. That is, the display of your Christ-like character, where your faith is growing and your love is growing, that he mentions in verse 3, and about which we, Paul and my entourage, can boast, as he says in verse 4, but there's still the fact that you're being harassed in persecution. But all that points to God's righteous judgment that will vindicate you and destroy your persecutors. He knows that with that harassment, these people who are striving to be like Jesus, and thankfully he can give thanks to God that they're making progress in that, but he also knows that they can grow weary in well-doing, especially as they're beaten down by their oppressors, and so he takes time to remind them, hey, you're the one who wins, not those guys. You will participate in God's kingdom, and they will perish everlastingly in hell. And that's what verses 6 through 10 are about. Verse 6, God is just. And He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Theology informs prayer so that we can provide what I say in the outline, godly encouragement. So the encouragement we provide is informed by God's truth that in this case, He's going to make it all right one day. And it's not simply a pat on the back and the false statement that, hey, it'll all be all right. And the truth is, some of those people, we don't know their earthly fate. We don't know what happened. Maybe some of them were killed. Maybe some of them were imprisoned. I cannot accurately say it'll be all right in that sense. 
I can absolutely say that it will be all right in the ultimate sense, which is what Paul does. It will be all right one day, and that should renew our hope, that missing element from earlier. And that's why I call this godly encouragement, because it focuses on what God says and what God has promised to do. Paul knows they need encouragement because he knows them, but the kind of encouragement he gives is consistent with God's truth. So hear this, friends. The more truth we know, the better encouragement we can give. If you want to know why I should, why we should spend our time worrying, concerning ourselves with theology or doctrine and all this Bible stuff, It really does get practical feet and hands when you are across the table from someone in relationship with them. The more truth you know, the better encouragement you can give. And all of us are called to do that. Theology informs prayer so that we can provide encouragement and lastly, so that we can pray for godly results. Verse 11, with this in mind, with all that in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling. Now, this doesn't mean that any of us were called to salvation by God because He looked at us and saw a worthy one. Rather, the Bible teaches That though all of us were at one time unworthy for sure, not seeking God, He sought us. He called us and by His power brought us out of darkness into light, moved upon our hearts so that we had an ability we didn't have prior, namely to receive by faith what He offers in Jesus Christ. And all of us who know the Lord have at a point in time had that happen. But now we live the Christian life. And God is endeavoring to work in our lives so that He makes us worthy of the calling that He gave. So one author says this, Paul prays that God Himself might make them worthy of God's calling. This means that these believers must grow in all the things that please God so that He is pleased with them and finally judges them to be living up to the calling that they have received. In short, they are to do what Ephesians 4 says, live a life worthy of the calling that they have received. And then verse 11 goes on to say, and that by His power He he prays, does Paul for them, He may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Now look at that in verse 11. The last part of that, look at that carefully. Every desire of yours. Well, there's a nugget buried in the Bible that you're like, that's the one I've been looking for. I have been looking for the how do I hit the lottery verse for all these years, and there it is. I got a desire to win the lottery. Every desire of yours. Paul even prayed it seems backwards from what we saw about the will of God in the previous couple of weeks in this series, and also from passages like Philippians 2, it is God who works in you 
to will and to act in order to fulfill whose good purpose? His. And so now Paul is praying that every good purpose of yours might be fulfilled. D.A. Carson says this, what Paul's thought presupposes is that God's people have been so transformed through their conversion to Jesus Christ and His gospel that they now develop new desires, desires for goodness and deeds prompted by faith, decidedly Christian plans and Christian goals. This is the prayer of a transformed person. And Paul is saying, as you are showing those evidences of transformation through faith and love and it increasing in your lives, I pray now that as a result of that, that God will bring to fruition every good purpose of yours. And then in verse 12, he prays, he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean, you know, for us to glorify uh, Christ, for Him to be glorified in us, means, as you heard me say in the Lord's model prayer, to display His character to His, His world. But what about for Him to be glorified, for us to be glorified in Him, you in Him, the middle of verse 12 says. One author says, when we glorify God, we are not giving Him some, something substantial that He would not otherwise have. We're simply ascribing to Him what is His. But when we are glorified, in the sense of this verse, we are being made more like Him. We are being strengthened or empowered to exhibit characteristics that we would not otherwise display. In effect, Paul is saying, I pray all of this so that that work that God has begun in you will continue as it is evidently happening now. And so as we, as we conclude for, for today, if you say, well, all right, I'm not somebody who's really ever learned how to pray. Nobody ever taught me. What do I do? I encourage you to consider being part of a growth partnership. We have our growth partners ministry. That's assigning you to another person, a woman to a woman, a man to a man. You get together on your own schedule. We have a, a booklet of material for you to go through. And in that booklet of material, every week it gives you some things to pray about so that you learn how to, how to pray. And just a, a short list of things for you to, to pray about. And so it's one way for you to do that and do that in the, uh, with uh, another person, a mentor even. And here is an acrostic that many of you are familiar with that is used in our Growth Partners material, ACTS, A-C-T-S, and the A-C-T-S stand for these four things. So that when you pray, you engage in adoration of the Lord. You know, Jesus says, speak to the Father about the Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So express those things to the Lord. Lord, this is who you are, and this is what I, what I want to be because of who you are. And this is what I want to see because of who you are. Adoration first. But then confession. You're in the presence of a holy God. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But then give thanks. Give thanks for what the Lord has done in your life. But Lord willing, you're giving thanks for what he's doing in the lives of other people that you've come to know through relationship and for whom you're praying in the context of what it is they have going on and thanking God 
for what he's doing. And then lastly, a fancy old word, but you know, if we want acts to work, you've got to have an S, so it's supplication. But that just means petitions or requests. And here there are requests just for you, but then there are requests for others, hopefully informed requests, because you have that and it comes out of that relationship. Here's your take-home truth. Intercessory prayer is based on truth and for the benefit of others. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being in your presence and with your people and, be able, and being able to be instructed by your word. Lord, you do not need us for anything that you accomplish. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of participating with you in the work that you are doing in your world, including through the blessed work of prayer. Help each of us then to be people of prayer. Help this church to be a church committed to prayer. And as a result of that, may all you accomplish in our lives and in our congregation bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song. You guys can stay seated. Sorry. Stay seated. Sorry, I'm stay so seated. sorry. sorry. Yep. You can stay standing. That's fine. No. <laughs> He's like, no, I'm out of here. No. <laughs> All right. So um, I hope this has been helpful for you guys. The, the, the prayer song before the message was beautiful. I want to learn just a little bit more. We're going to solidify the ladies part. We have just a few minutes. If you would throw that up on the screen, that'd be great. So we've got sopranos and altos, right? Um, here, here was our note. I want to solidify where our altos are going. I think the sopranos, you guys got it really well. But how do I know if I'm a lady? How do I know if I'm a soprano or an alto? Might be a question that you have. So we're all going to sing, all the ladies are going to sing the melody. And if you find yourself really reaching, especially at the end here, we're going to go pretty high up on the, uh, uh, on the keyboard here when we hit praise, Father, Son. Um, and you're like, ah, it's a little too, too high for me. You may be a soprano, just not able to hit that high note. Or you may be, in fact, an alto. Um, so, all ladies, praise God. Let's start right there. All ladies together. Here we go. This is the soprano part. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. We got to reach. Here we go. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And Amen is the exact same. Okay, so that is the that is the soprano part. So if you're like, mm, that ain't my cup of tea, maybe it's time to drop to the alto part, which sounds like this. So if I can get my <coughs> all ladies to sing the alto part together, I'll try to play this. So our first line. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's our first line. Let's do that together. Ready? All ladies. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Next line. Same note. Praise him all creatures here below. We're hanging out on that E flat quite a bit. Ready? Praise him above ye heavenly host, ye heavenly host, is how that goes, ye heavenly host, good, next line, 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Okay, so it's a little bit different here. This is the, this is the, uh, we haven't actually done this when we've sang it in the past, but I really like it. So here's how it goes. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then the Amen. So let's all do that together, ladies. Praise Father, ready? Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then the Amen is Amen. Okay? All right. So all ladies together. And if you felt like that was more your jam, then you can stay on that note. If you felt like, no, I like to go up high with the sopranos, then sing that as well. All right, here we go. Just all ladies together. And I'm going to play through the alto part with you guys, because I think sopranos, you guys got it. Here we go. Ready? Praise God, whom all blessings flow. Alto, here's your note. Praise him all. Good. Here we go. Nice. Oh, sorry. It is. Yeah, it's dotted there. Okay. All right, so that's the two ladies' parts together. All right, so let's do um, everybody together. Let's all stand, if you would. Everybody together. So the guys, don't be afraid. So we're going to sing down here. Us guys, for right now, we'll, we'll deal with you guys later, okay? We'll get you in a couple weeks, all right? We're going to hang out down here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Or if you want, you can come up. Praise, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So either one, guys, is fine. Okay, so you could do either one of those notes. Let's all put it together, guys. Here we go. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. Nice. Beautiful. Good job. Hopefully you've learned something today. If you have, pat yourself on the back. We'll see you back here in a little bit. 11.15 is our second hour. We'll see you then.